3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR. Hope you're having a lovely morning. As always, this is James joined by Rob and Grace. How was your weekend, gang? Good. I think I was having quite a fun because we had a Halloween coming up tomorrow. Oh, yeah. But obviously, mm. everyone had to have an early celebration because it falls on a weekday. Yep. And that was fun. Uh, I'm not really a person who dresses up, so I just relied on makeup, did like a simple spider wrap. My friend did it for me, not me. Lovely. <laughs> but yeah, cool. That was, yeah, that was, had a bit of enjoyment finally after so long. So And does this mean you're done study? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> finally. Now I'm going to be an unemployed person for I don't know how long. Yeah, <laughs> let's, see. Yeah. let's see how it goes. The first week or so of unemployment's lovely, and yeah. then and then it hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true, yeah, because just having the enjoyment and then, oh, no, what are we going to do now? So, yeah. Now, just, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I think Time I just want to chill as well because, you know, it's been quite a while yeah. um, coming here. But then, you know, it's also time to find a job if I can. Mm. If I can. Just, we shall see. Yeah, time will tell. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. How was your re- weekend, Rob? Um, yeah, pretty good. Not much to report, really. Um, I've been watching the Beckham documentary on ah. Netflix, mm-hmm. um, which has kind of consumed me, to be honest. And just reading. Again. Reading and walking and listening. Oh, it was a pretty big... Um, weekend for heavy metal fans like yeah. three pretty big heavy metal albums came out um, so there's yeah I just went for walks and listened to heavy metal so. name and shame the metal wow. bands please um, uh, a hardcore band called Year of the Knife yeah. um, have just re- released an album um, which is pretty epic and Harm's Way have released one and another like a they're a super group, I guess, called End, Ooh. Um, which is just, yeah, mind-blowing, like, mind-blowing heavy metal. Um, the guitarist is uh, a producer called Will Putney, who's Ooh. just this, uh, he's sort of like a, an almost Rick Rubin type of okay. heavy yep. metal, like, if if you know a metal album and you like a metal album, chances are he's had... Yeah, one of those. An effort um, involved in it. So, yeah, that was pretty big for me. Is there something about Halloween weekend? Do you reckon the metal bands get around? <laughs> I don't know, but I sort of just leaned into it, hey. Yeah. Like, yeah. How was your weekend, James? Uh, James's weekend was good. <laughs> um, I went to a Halloween party and I dressed as a bedsheet, which was pretty good. 
I was sounds think, comfortable. Yeah. It was, sounds very comfortable. I was thinking of yes. going as a ghost and having the bed sheet over. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to cut holes in the bed sheet and like yeah. kind of ruin them. Yeah. So I just, why don't I just go as the bed sheet? Was you know, it, was it, what color was the bed sheet? It was pink. Nice. Which was pretty nice. Yeah. The thing about Halloween is you can dress as anything as you want and no one can say anything no because Halloween anything. is about anything of whatever you want to dress up as. <laughs> yeah. And there was a worst dress competition and, I don't know how I didn't win it, to be honest. <laughs> I was robbed, and a few people a few people informed me that, yeah, you should have won it. We were pushing for you. Wow. So that was quite deflating, if I'm being honest. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. But overall, good weekend. I also had a high tea on Sunday. Whoa. Which wasn't a real high tea. It was just at a friend's house, but lots of cupcakes. So that was good. Yummy. That's why it's important. Mm, mm. So happy Halloween, everybody, for Halloween. tomorrow. And yeah, party time in the studio because Grace has done study. So Ooh. well done, Grace, party again. Let's go. <laughs> just, just, just don't think about the unemployment. That's no. all. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I will make sure of that. Don't think about it. Uh, so let's jump to some headlines. <laughs> yes. So if uh, a family, sorry, not family. So a Korean, a Korean family, basically. And then the son's name So Lee and his mother have, were immigrated to Australia when he was about six years old. But then now they have to prepare to return to South Korea because a six-year wait in their visa application, which they lodged, means now that the 23-year-old is too old for the category the mom has applied for. And yeah, the, the, the visa application was basically declined. They immigrated... The mother and the fa- the father include immigrated to Australia from South Korea about seventeen years ago to join their sister, who is have been granted citizenship after being sponsored through hospitality work. But then now the family has sold their sushi restaurant in Hamley Beach after running it for five years because the family cra- uh, qualifications mean that their financial prospects are limited. And the so at the start of 2017, Mr. Lee w- was nearly 17. His mother applied for a permanent parent visa, parent visa and included him as a dependent child. But he actually turned 23 just two months before his visa lot, visa was declined. So that's why now he's ineligible to for the visa. Mm. And they are basically they actually applied for a contributory parent visa, which was which has a far shorter profess- processing time compared to other parent visas, but it also has an additional fee of over forty thousand dollars once approved. So yeah, it it is very financially bearing there. And according to the Department of Home Affairs website, the contributory parent visas that were finalized in the 2022 to 2023 year had a wait time of an average of six years. But it is known that the time for the waiting, the, the waiting time for new applications have doubled. In com- but in comparison, other parents and aged parent visas now have a processing time of nearly 29 years. In March, there has been a review into the Australia's immigration system commissioned by the federal government. And they found that now the country relies too heavily on temporary migrants without offering clear pathways to permanent residency. It is said that the final migration strategy that the federal government is tend to outline is going to be released, expected to be released later this year. Internet and phone services are being restored in Gaza after almost 36 hours without them following Israeli airstrikes. 
Paltel Group, who provides communication services in the area, said on Sunday that landline, mobile and internet would return gradually. Rights organisations across the world, such as Amnesty International, have warned the blackout would stop war crimes, war crimes and other abuses from being documented. Australian rental vacancy rates fall to a record low, data shows from recently. Limited supply and strong demand prompts national median weekly advertised rents to rise 14.6% over the year. PropTrack data shows the number of new rental listings declined 5.7% in the year to September, with the fewest new listings in September for more than a decade. The total number of rental listings fell 7.1% on the year before hitting a record low. So we're going to jump to a song before we jump into some interviews. This is American-Palestinian artist Lena McCool with the song El Abad. Min zaman kinti bi-albi la-ili ma-fi hada jambi Min zaman daiman kinti inti la-ili ahsan sahbi andi lama kinna جميل ياسمين بشكل وشم لما كنا صغار كنا نبتسم ونقول بحياتنا ما راح نستسلم هيدي مش نهاية المطاف بداية حب كبير كبير بداية عالم
بداية عالم انطلاق And that was All About by Lina McCool. Now I'm going to be speaking to Helena Hassani, who is an advocate, human rights advocate and campaigner for the prevention of child and forced marriage and family violence. She was a delegate to the United Nations for the annual tripartite consultation on resettlement 2023 in Geneva and continues to work and advocate for the rights of girls and women. Helena is also a poet and writes poems on forced marriage and issues related to violence against women and girls. Good morning, Helena. Good morning, Grace. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank good you very much. Awesome. Yep. So there's going to be an event happening tomorrow in regards to a survival-led approach to combating modern slavery by Australia's Anti-Slavery Australia. So could you tell us what's that about? Um, I guess it's uh, about, uh, as you could say, combating modern slavery mm-hmm. um, in Australia and especially uh, prevention of um, child and forced marriage in Australia because uh, there are many, many myths that it doesn't happen in Australia. However, it really happens behind the closed doors. So we are trying to raise awareness through this um, uh, event but also introducing uh, our absolutely amazing um, eight series of podcasts to frontline uh, workers, to the entire community um, in Australia. Mm. And so, Helena, is that your focus for the event or is it for the for every, for every speakers of the event that tomorrow? And why are you advocating for the prevention on child marriage and family violence? I think it's uh, basically um, anti-slavery Australia is working towards combating modern slavery in Australia, all types of modern slavery, and they provide support for people who are experiencing. Particularly, our um, focus tomorrow is on um, the um, forced marriage uh, prevention, because mm-hmm. in Australia, uh, according to legislation, forced marriage is also included as part of uh, modern slavery practice. And uh, the next question was why um, I'm advocating for yep. the prevention. Um, so I have also just um, started a consultancy on um, prevention of um, um, child and forced marriage uh, in Australia, so I think one of the, um, based on statistics that we get from um, Australian Federal Police and like, you know, working with um, sectors uh, um, in Australia, forced marriage is getting um, a lot of um, uh, increase in the numbers. And a lot of young people are uh, experiencing forced marriage, unfortunately, in Australia due to many, many reasons. Um, that uh, I, I won't go, we don't have too much time to go through this, but um, I think it's, uh, people don't know that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, like, you know, uh, we have got lack of information for young people who are experiencing. We have got families who doesn't know that it is uh, a crime in Australia, forced marriage. And we have got workers who are working with um, these vulnerable young people However, they're not sure about the right support services available in Australia. 
So it's a, it's a great event for anyone who is attending to have a broader understanding of modern slavery. Um, however, a main, the main focus would be on forced marriage. I see. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, forced uh, child marriage. Mm, I see. And why do you think it's important to look from a survivor's perspective when combating modern slavery? Like, how can people ensure that the they have the right expertise from when you when you look from the survivors side? I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a great question. What we have been doing um, in anti-slavery Australia, um, our team has um, a dedicated. Um, research fellow, Dr. Um, Jacqueline Nielsen, who has got expertise in working um, with um, victim survivors. And we have been conducting interviews with uh, people who are, have either experienced and has left the uh, forced marriage successfully or even young people who are dealing with this situation mm-hmm. at the time of um, the interviews that we have con- conducted, what we have found is that all these victim survivors want things um, p- to be in place, but based on their voices. So the, the, uh, uh, we have an informed approach while we are working with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma-informed approach is absolutely um, crucial based on... Uh, what we have gathered from young people, but um, I guess what they want is they want things uh, to happen with them, not for them. So mm. they want to be part of, like, you know, the um, programs that we'll be introducing. The, the, there should be the, um, the voice in everything that we are introducing, whether it's a program, whether it's, like, you know, uh, events, whether it's um, a- any type of um, uh, advocacy that is happening, is um, t- it has to be uh, part of their voice. Mm, definitely. Now, yep. yep. Yeah, sorry. Um, you had another part to the, to the question, which was um, how can we ensure the right expertise? Mm. Now, um Based on that question, I guess um, Anti-Slavery Australia, My Blue Sky is a national um, uh, service which provides support to um, professionals, um, advice to them, and also they provide um, support to people who are experiencing modern slavery in Australia. And if, if anyone doesn't have the right tools, um, they will be equipped very well by contacting the, these expert people mm-hmm. in the sector and then um, they can actually guide and support the clients that they are working with. Mm, I see. And so, Helena, you're also going to be hosting an eight series of po- uh, podcasts on forced marriage you're going, that's expected to be launched soon. Could you introduce a bit about what is that? It? Yes. Uh, so we, our team is absolutely... I'm thrilled and uh, excited to release um, the Ed series podcast, which is again um, about uh, forced marriage in Australia. Now, um, the issue has been so far is that everyone thinks it doesn't happen here in Australia, and we are we have got uh, got people 
um, interviewed uh, that we have interviewed for these eight podcasts who are from Australian Federal Police, who are like you know community leaders, um, who are experts um, in the sector, have enormous number of years that they have worked with clients, and we have people who have experienced um, forced marriage themselves in this um, episode. And it's absolutely rich um, in knowledge and in, in, like, you know, the people that we have um, uh, interviewed who are part of this podcast are um, basically experts in their own fields, in their own work. And um, if you are hearing to um, uh, hearing this podcast, please take your time, hear what has been discussed, what's been said, and the message that you will get is absolutely important. Um, and uh, it's, it's very exciting because it's the first forced marriage podcast in Australia. Mm, that's it. That sounds very interesting. And is there an expected date of when the podcast is coming out and where can listeners access to to have a listen? Yes, so we are hoping that we will be releasing and it will be available after the um, our event on 31st of October, which is tomorrow, um, 1.30. Mm. Um, and anyone can have access to it. We will share the link. Um, um, we are hoping to have this in, like, you know, Spotify, um and other platforms that will be very accessible to um, everyone in Australia and globally even, uh, but it will be um, um, available or accessible tomorrow. I see. And Helena, unfortunately we're running out of time, but is there anything listeners can prepare for the event happening tomorrow? I guess um, uh, if anyone is interested um, um, or um, people, we have got people who might be experiencing themselves, it, it must be tough. So we are um, giving some um, information that if you are experiencing or anyone who is experiencing and you need support, please contact the right um, um, support services, which we will be introducing alongside the podcast release. And um, I guess it's also having challenging our own biases um, and assumptions um, and myths in that we are hearing in Australia and um, consider that it happens here. And um, this might be, I guess, the stepping stone for so many other works that needs to happen around forced marriage in Australia. But we're really excited that um, it's coming out and it will be a great help for everyone in the community to understand the issue and um, how they can address the issue in Australia. Awesome. Thank you so much, Helena. No problems. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was Helena Hassani, who is an advocate, human rights advocate and campaigner for the prevention of child and force marriage and family violence. She's going to be one of the speakers for tomorrow's event happening at 1.30 to 2.30, but this is online via Zoom, so it, everyone everyone should be able to get onto it. It's basically about the survivors-led approach to combating modern slavery, and this event will be live captioned. If you, you want to discuss how you can 
how we how they can support access for requirements uh, access requirements you please contact events dot social justice at uts.edu.au so that so you can access the stuff uh, access the stuff there in regards to this event and yeah just contact them so you can discuss how to ex- support access requirements awesome. have fun on Melbourne Cup Day but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup join coalition for the protection of racehorses and 10 fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am live music DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Logging operation, any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Narang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. 
For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to Welcome back to Monday Breakfast here on 855 AM 3CR Radical Radio. You're with James, Rob and Grace. Now, Rob, you mentioned that you have been diving into the Beckham documentary. Is that mm. right? Yeah, correct. What are, your, what are your impressions? It's it's a very layered and complicated uh, documentary. Mm. Um, I, I initially started watching it because I was sort of... I was explaining to my partner, like, she she was speaking about how she wanted to watch it, and I was like, yeah, I, you know, as an English person, as an English immigrant, I guess I would say, I was saying to her, I was like, I don't think people that outside of England understand how much of a cultural phenomenon that yeah. Dave Beckham is. But, of course, like, it's it comes with a bit of a grain of salt, you know, like, mm. it's... Obviously, like the the English paparazzi and the the, tab- the tabloid um, infrastructure that exists there is just horrible, horrible. Mm. Um, yeah, it's and it's it's really, it's just it's really it's actually really hard to watch mm. the stuff that they go both David and Victoria, but particularly Victoria went through just by existing yeah. and trying to do what they were doing. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you think of the documentary, James? Yeah, pretty, um, definitely some hard-to-watch moments. Yeah. Um, I had no idea about the influence of David Beckham. I yep. was to say, oh, that's the good-looking one. Mm. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, the, the Posh Spice, yeah. Yeah. And then you, you dive into it and it's like, ooh, the, the, the English public's pretty toxic out there, isn't yeah. it? Uh, the reason yeah. we're bringing up the Beckham documentary is that there are some examples of toxic parenting that the next interview mm. we're going to play explores. On the Sporting Record on Thursday, myself, John and M talked to Dr. Mary Wessner, uh, who is a lecturer and researcher at the Victoria Uni within the Institute for Health and Sport, about a conversation article she and two colleagues wrote about the David Beckham documentary and examples of toxic parenting and sporting environments that mm. came up in that. And it's very interesting. So here we go. Here's Dr. Mary Wessner. So we're going to jump to our next segment, and we've got Dr. Mary Wessner coming onto the show, who's a lecturer and researcher at Victoria University with the Institute for Health and Sport, who wrote a, an excellent co- uh, article on the conversation about the new Beckham documentary, David Beckham, and examples of toxic parenting in that. Mm-hmm. So uh, welcome to the show, Mary. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me and giving us space for this important topic. No worries. So just to start off, uh, when did you come across the Beckham documentary? It's blown up in recent times, but when did you come across it? And what really piqued your interest in terms of this parenting sport angle? Three weeks ago that I watched it, so uh, probably within the first week that it came out or so. Um, And, you know, I'm obviously researching on the topic of safe sports when I watched it, you can't help but be impacted by the fans, by the coach, and just all the abuse that he experienced. But mm. the really poignant scene for me was when the two parents were talking and Beckham was talking. And those interactions and their different uh, kind of interpretations of the behaviors, especially of the dad, 
was really mm. impactful for me, and I thought spoke to a lot of the normalization of abuse in, in the name of tough love in coaching. Mm. So the, the article in the conversation starts off with the fact that David Beckham was copying a lot of abuse from England about getting a red card in the World Cup that led to them losing and not uh, winning when people thought they should have. And the quote from David was, I was able to handle being abused by the fans because of the way my dad had been to me, which really stands out, doesn't it? Um, so, Mary, uh, you've done some research on, on this that you said. Uh, in what ways do parents can parents be toxic to their children in these sporting environments? Yeah, so I think the sporting environment overall has this obvious element of competition. And for a long time... Uh, certain behaviors have been accepted in sport that wouldn't be accepted elsewhere in the name of performance games, in the names of getting the best out of players, out of children. And we lose sight of the fact that they are, in fact, children. So behaviors such as being overly critical, um, forcing a child to play when they're injured, excessive training, ignoring them after mm. a poor performance. If we were to do that in other contexts, say uh, in response to a test result at a school or, or a teacher throwing a book at a child the way a coach might throw a water bottle, it would never be accepted. So these behaviors have just been normalized in the sporting context for far too long. Mm, that, that, that's very true. And um, the three of us on this show have all experienced some form of abuse, maybe not from our own parents, but being in sporting clubs where it's quite apparent. I know you have, John. Do you have an example? Uh, I have a few examples. Hi, Mary. My name's John, Hi. and uh, I'm a, a parent <laughs> and a sporting parent. James, who've just been speaking to, is my son. Yes. So uh, I used to drag, I used to take him along to footy and cricket and and and, and tennis, and I don't look back happily as being a sporting <laughs> parent. It's very stressful. <laughs> Not a good time. So Mary, uh, you mentioned that um, some examples of uh, the way parents can psychologically abuse children in a sporting context. Uh, what are some more examples of types of things parents can do that? really um, damage or hurt children in this environment? Yeah, so I think, uh, like I said before, a lot of, you know, some things are black and white to us. And I think when we talk about situations where there's sexual abuse or physical violence, um, you know, that, that involves striking someone or hitting someone, that's pretty readily we're able to see that that's not on. Mm. But when it comes to parenting, especially at the community level, a lot of parents play dual roles. They're often involved in the club. They're a board member. They're a coach. They're a parent. So they're playing multiple roles for their children. And, you know, it, this isn't meant to villainize parents by any means because I think in a lot of ways people are just reproducing what they grew up with mm -hmm. and thinking that, you know, even with today's eyes, that that's okay. But these behaviors, like I said, overly criticizing, um, being forced to play while injured is a big one. We saw that a lot in our uh. data. I think it was about one in three or one in four had experienced that as a child in Australian community sports. And and that's something that's actually glorified at the elite level. Mm. Playing through an injury is seen as as required, as necessary. Mm. You know, that's one of the peaks of your performance is, is fighting back and being resilient. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like we see that with um, as a rugby league fan growing up, that I remember someone had a broken collarbone in a grand final and wow. was hero-worshipped for, for playing mm. through. But... Mary, I really, I love the last um, paragraph in your article that says, despite Beckham himself suggesting it was all worth it, the evidence suggests he was successful in spite of the high-pressure home environment, not because of it. 
um, I think that was a really powerful way to end the article. And I was just wondering, um, from your research and from um, your position, what do you think is helpful for kids? Like, how how can parents be supportive and how can they encourage their kids to, you know, be resilient and competitive and be tough without, you know, exhibiting these really harmful behaviours? What types of things can they do? Yes, I think, you know, it it goes back to um, workshops that we've actually run in, in Tasmania with Clubs Tasmania. And the name of the workshops was Let Kids Be Kids. And I think it goes back to remembering why we want kids in sport, why kids want to be in sport. And when you ask them, it's mostly around the social elements. They they maybe want to learn some new skills, and they just want to have fun. And when you look at why and when they leave, it's usually that 13 to 15-year age, right, when things are getting super competitive, especially for girls. Mm. And they don't want that necessarily. And I'm not saying that everyone doesn't want that. But really what it comes down to is thinking, how do I support my kid in whatever they want to do? And as parents, if you want them to stay involved in sport and stay active and have all the benefits that we know sports participation can have, then it's really about asking them what they want and what they're enjoying and what they're not and not feeling like they need to stay in a a specific sport or that they need to go up to a certain level in order to be successful in that. Mm, Fantastic. Uh, I think that's a really good place to end on, especially the note that let kids be kids. That's That's pretty good. Mary, can I ask you one quick question? Are you familiar with uh, Nathan Burke's book, Best and Fairest Sports Parenting? I'm not, actually. Yeah, so the uh, the ex-Bulldogs player and, and coach of the AFLW team, yep. Nathan Burke, he's written a book that has only come out recently, uh, this year, 2023, and I've, uh, I've dived into it a bit. I'm hoping to do a little book report on it yeah. some stage on this program. It's called Best and Fairest Sports Parenting, and uh, I think you'll like it. It's very good. Is it like a like a little workbook for for parents? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. And it's written for parents, really. Yeah. Um, oh, you excellent. know, it's got about uh, seven seven issues that parents might need to address. <laughs> mm. Yeah, interesting. So oh, that's, that's from great. our uh, that. that's from our sponsor of the show, Melbourne Books, or member or business member. Is that right, John? Yeah, uh, yeah, business sponsor. Yeah. Perfect. So there you go, Mary. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Mary Wessner, a lecturer and researcher at Victoria University with the Institute for Health and Sport, talking about the new David Beckham documentary and the examples of toxic parenting in sport. We're going to jump to a few announcements now, and then after the break, we're going to have a lovely song by local band Squid Nebula called In Motion. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Narang. 
care from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, on behalf of the Gumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty... We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go in the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. This November, the Australian National Academy of Music presents a festival celebrating the music of pioneering American composer George Crumb. Across four thrilling performances, Crumb's dynamic and engaging music will be paired alongside music by Igor Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, Edgar Varese and more from the 23rd to the 25th of November at Abbotsford Convent. Find out more and book your tickets at anam.com.au. The Australian National Academy of Music is a 3CR supporter. Any of us may become a carer at any time in our lives, even temporarily. Carer Gateway is a free support service for anyone who cares for a family member or friend with disability, a medical condition, mental illness or who is frail due to age. If you or someone you know are a carer, call Carer Gateway on 1800 422 737 or visit carergateway.gov.au to get support that is right for you. Carer Gateway is a 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
That was In Motion by Squid Nebula. And now we are joined by the founder of the Coalition for the Protection of Ray Horses and the Nup to the Cup campaign, uh, longtime animal advocate Elio Kelotto. Uh, and we'll be talking about his introduction to animal activism and the Nup to the Cup campaign. Elio, thanks so much for joining Monday Breakfast. That's a pleasure. Now, uh, just to get started, how did you come to be involved in campaigning for racehorse protection? Uh, well, look, I was involved with an organisation, um, an animal protection organisation, and we received a phone call from a lady who was concerned about some horses that appeared to be in very poor condition, and we investigated the, the property and we found that it was, a, it was actually a knackery and um, there was in excess of 100 horses there and there were two pens um, that were completely full. We went into those pens and discovered that most of these horses were race horses. Um, many of them were in really good condition and still had their race plates. And um, the penny dropped for me that this was something that needed to be exposed. And um, that, then after that, that led to about a two-year investigation into the racing industry, including this particular NACRI and some others. And um, the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses was formed in 2008 as, as a consequence. Mm. Do you think you could speak more to why people should say nup to the cup? Well, um, I mean, when you look at racing for what it is, um, on the surface it looks like it's glamorous and it's fun. And, um, you know, I admit that prior to um, being involved uh, with his campaign that I actually had been to the races and had a good day. Um, but there is a dark side to the racing industry that, you know, we've exposed. It's always been there. Um, and, you know, anyone that truly cares about animals could not possibly support the racing industry. I mean, these horses are forced to compete. Um, they are raced as young as two years of age, and so they're trained from about 18 months of age. And many of these horses break down even before making it to the racetrack mm. um, in a race. Um, and when they're retired, even before reaching maturity, when, you know, their growth plates don't fully um, uh, form until, uh, uh, until about five years of age. Yep. Um, so this is basically an industry that forces these racehorses to compete. And, um, and when they're used up and, and most of them will sustain injuries as a result of being pushed too far, um, mm. they end up being disposed of and most likely end up in a, um, you know, as, as pet meat, um, as sold to greyhounds. And we find that totally unacceptable. Yep. And, and further to that, I mean, we've done a, we've been uh, doing a death watch report for the last 10 odd years. Yep. And, and that reveals that, um, you know, there's um, literally, Horses dying on our racetracks um, almost on a daily basis. I think that would be the more accurate figure. But the study wow. that we produce is based on evidence from stewards' reports. And our latest study has shown that in the, in the 2022-23 racing year, yep. 168 horses were killed on track. And I think wow. that's horrific that this is a sport that, um, that knows that it's going to kill its competitors. Mm. And these horses that do survive don't even have a retirement plan. Wow. What do you what do you think made this year obviously um yeah, the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses has only been recording the the uh the data since two thousand fourteen of horses which have died because of <clears> racehorsing. <throat> but what do you think made this year the deadliest year on record? Well, 
Um, I actually personally don't think that this year is any worse than the other years. I think the difference has been that we've become better at finding out uh, where we investigate more um, horses than we have in in, in previous years. And we've also got people within the industry that feed us information, that, that tip us off about horses that... Um, that sustained an injury and are likely to have been killed. And it's our follow-up investigation that has led to uncovering a lot of these deaths coming out. So even though our study shows 168 horses, they're the ones that we've got evidence of. But even from um, this study, there's many other horses that we couldn't prove, but we know are most likely dead, but we weren't able to prove it. So even though the figure is officially 168 racehorses, um, the, the ones that die each year as a result of racing injuries um, across Australia, we would say, would be well into the thousands. Oh wow, wow! And you mentioned before that the the conditions of the horses is sort of kept in the dark. How do you think that the industry keeps it that way? I think they've kept it that way for so long because they've always had a reputation for, you know, being glamorous. And hmm. I think we've all heard the saying that racehorse is the best looked after animal in the world, and that's simply not the case at all. And and I think it was something that uh, animal, uh, animal rights groups um, didn't consider, and it was hmm. just fortuitously that, that uh, we fell into it and decided we should do something about it. Um, but pretty much they have gone about their business for the last 250-odd years without um, having to, you know, answer to anyone. Uh, the RSPCA have definitely had a campaign against the use of the whip, but um, as we know, the RSPCA aren't as strong as they could be. And, um, and, and now they're being made accountable, and now we are seeing uh, changes taking place. Um, when we started, there was not one equine welfare department in any state um, jurisdiction. Now, every state wow. has an equine welfare department. Um, but are they actually doing, uh, you know, things for, for the welfare of racehorses or is it just a bit of a PR stunt to make people believe that they are caring about them? I can tell you about Racing Victoria. Mm. They have an equine welfare department that I think staffs, I think, five, between five and seven people. And they have a euthanasia program. That uh, if you've got a racehorse and um, that racehorse um, has, has sustained an injury, you can give them a call and fill out a form, and and uh, they'll come and pick up your racehorse and um, and have it killed for you, uh, because wow. they don't want animal activists exposing what was exposed in 2019 when um, 7:30 ran the final story, and I suggest that anyone who cares about racehorses, if they haven't seen it, should watch the final uh, the final race, it's called, sorry. Um, it's on YouTube. And it, um, that investigation that went over, that lasted two years, um, that we were in, heavily involved in, uh, proved that around 3,000 racehorses were going through this one abattoir alone. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's disgusting that that's allowed to happen, but now it's happening more underground because the racing industry knows that they're losing popularity with the younger generations who are mm. turning away from racing, and and it's our job mm. to keep the truth out there and and um, and you know make people aware of what they're supporting if they're going to the races. Yeah, sure. 
and why why do you think like what has caused the sort of decline in the horse racing horse racing support by the younger generation do you think it's because of your advocacy and campaigns for the nub to nub to the cup campaign yeah well i think um once we started campaigning against horse racing i i think it's something that hits you pretty quickly if you do care about mm. animals i think once you see some of the graphic images that um you know we have on our website and when we do our demonstrations we're, we're yeah. demonstrating all year round um certainly the focus is spring carnival um but we are campaigning uh, all year round and and i think once somebody sees the truth when they see those images or they watch the video um, and like I said, the final race, um, that, uh, the investigation uh, that was um, came out in 2019, once you watch mm. that, any person that cares about animals could not possibly uh, go to the races after that. And I, and I think the younger people um, uh, are, are easier to, to receive that message because um, they haven't been maybe that... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> they haven't developed... Habit of maybe going to the races like some older people may have, yep. and so we're seeing like when we're demonstrating, we're seeing a lot of young people deciding that they don't want to, they're not going to the races anymore, and we're yep. seeing uh, more and more people turning up to our events, which is fantastic, and wow. um, we can see though where racing industry will um, will will become just a a little uh, little industry that um, is only supported by the hardcore racing uh, fraternity. <clears throat> yep sure and i guess like also as a, a person pretty passionate about animal animal rights and especially racehorses i've seen some pretty heated debates about supporting um the melbourne cup specifically what i was just wondering what kind of opposition you guys have faced you know in the in the front lines of advocating for racehorses uh, look, we've. Um, I, I think we've uh, been able to get our message out there. We, um, in the early days, that they obviously make it as difficult for us as they possibly can to try mm. to get our message out there. And uh, certainly, we. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not welcome at, at uh, most race tracks. Mm. Uh, but our demonstrations out in the front do attract public attention. We've seen. Uh, you know, six, seven odd horses killed in on Melbourne Cup Day in the last 10, 10 years. Wow. That's certainly been a, a really bad step for the racing industry uh, that they haven't been able to, um, to get over, I, I don't think. And, and it was because we were actually there that uh, there was a voice for those racehorses yep. that enabled the story to get out there and be made bigger. Yep. And, um, you know, we're, we're out there saying to people, you know, like, we're there's a racehorse killed on our racetracks every two days um, and, and many more that we don't know about, you know, sustain injuries and, and disappear from racing altogether. Yeah. And and that's that's the message that we have for people going to the races that these, yeah. these are not, you know, it's not only the horses in the Melbourne Cup. In fact, often on Melbourne Cup Day, there's horses that die around the country. There was a horse in Sydney, I think, last year that died mm. um, on, on Melbourne Cup Day and, and uh, it, it just happens all the time. And it's, inher- it's, in- it's because horse racing is inherently dangerous. You're asking mm. a horse um, that's often too young 
um, they race too often, and they're being whipped, and they're pushed to be on their physical limits. And when that happens, mm. a horse just runs until a point where, you know, 90% of them bleed from the lungs, uh, which is a very telling stat as a result wow. of overexertion. But many sustain microfractures, and that can develop into major fractures, and sometimes um, they can be breaks that, um, uh, you know, when you see these catastrophic um, limb injuries where you see a, a horse's leg dangling uh, as it's trying to, to run, um, they die from a heart attack. Yeah. Um, it's crazy that a horse, a young fit horse, can die from a heart attack. And that's, these are the telling facts about racing that tells you that um, horse racing uh, just pushes these horses way too much. And often the racehorse pays uh, for that with, with their lives. The Melbourne Cup uh, day is fast approaching, and that's the big day in the horse racing calendar. Um, could you just describe what the Nut to the Cup campaign is and how people can get involved if they're interested? Yeah, sure. We've been running Nut to the Cup for about uh, 12 years now, and it started just with one three-metre-by-three-metre marquee um, in Newmarket Reserve, which is a small park just up the road from the main entrance to Flemington. And we put up the signs that we had and thought it was an opportunity for us to show people you can have a good time without going to the races and at the same time be a voice for them. Um, and obviously there's a lot of people coming from the city, uh, coming down Epson Road and also Racecourse Road uh, that would see our signs. And we, we could see the, the horrified looks on people's faces as they, as they were driving by um, or walking by or on trams. And they're horrified to see those images. And from then it's grown to be a proper event where we have music and this year we're uh, holding it in the, in the Bowls Club, which is in the park. Uh, we're also going to be doing a demonstration on the corner there so people, all our signs and it will be up there. And we and Nuts of the Cup, the idea of Nuts of the Cup is that people can have a great time on Melbourne Cup Day. But instead of being out there being parties, indirect, you know, perhaps inadvertently uh, supporting horse racing by attending a, a, a Melbourne Cup event, um, they can actually support animals and attend one of the many Nuts of the Cup events being held around the country that raise money for animal uh, causes um, rather than giving it to the racing industry that uh, will only further exploit racehorses. So our event is, our, is the feature event here in, in Melbourne and um, we're going to be having two great bands playing, um, the Tarantinos and Play Lunch. Um, there's going to be free bowls. Um, it, it's always a really fun day. We're going to have these silly human races, and it's 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 a really good day. It's a really positive day that people can spend with like-minded people who really care about animals. Mm. Um, we think we have much more fun than um, what they do just across the road um, in, at the Flemington Racecourse, and yeah. um, people can get together and feel good about having a good time, as well at the same time raising money for for animal charities. Mm. Awesome. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for. Thank you so much for for speaking to us about Nut to the Cup and, uh, in general, the horse racing industry. Cheers. Thank you. That was Elio Calotto, uh, the founder of the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and the Nut to the Cup campaign. Um, you can find more information on the reality behind horse racing at horseracingkills.com. And that includes uh, data from uh, this horse raising season and also for information on on alternatives to attending the Melbourne Cup Day, you can head to nuptothecup.org.
Welcome back to 3CR. That was I Feel Love, well, part of I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Um, We're here now live in the studio, actually, with Dr. Molly McHugh to speak about the rise of friendship and community in Melbourne throughout the 1960s and 70s, particularly among progressive young people. Hi, Molly. How are you going? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. So, first off, can you just paint us a picture about the conditions which led to young people moving to share houses in that time? Sure, I can. Um, firstly, I've never heard anyone call me Dr. Molly McHugh before, <laughs> so that was quite exciting. Um, so I guess it was kind of associated with the rise of university attendance, the most kind of obvious thing. Um, a few unis opened in that time. Mm. Melbourne uni attendance flourished. Mm. Um, and people needed somewhere to live. <laughs> so yeah. in a practical sense, colleges, um, I think, started to overflow a little bit. Um, also in the inner suburbs in that time, there was a bit of a donut migration, they call it, um, pattern, where people were mm. moving kind of a upwardly mobile working class were moving out to the suburbs because it was you know, embarrassing to be in the suburbs like Carlton and Fitzroy. They were seen as slums. So there was cheap wow. housing in the inner suburbs. Wow. which is almost unimaginable now, yeah. but um, it happened. <laughs> and so obviously people, you know, jumped on that. Um, it was kind of easy to find a rental. Um, and there was a lot of, I think for a lot of young people, they were trying to depart from their parents. Mm. They were embarrassed by their kind of, you know, boring um, middle-class parents. There was a bit of a generation gap. So I think moving into a share house was a way to, separate themselves from that trajectory Mm. um, and explore a different way of life. Um, So it was kind of, there was a practical element, but it was also a bit ideological, I suppose. Um, Wanting to depart from boring middle-classness was part of it, I think. Mm. Sure. And how, like, how do you think friendships and sort of arose from that and became the institution that it is. Yeah. Um, I guess it kind of happened incidentally. Like, I don't think anyone was a friendship radical in that time. But, you know, I think people needed support from each other. Um, You met met friends at uni, like people you might not not have ever kind of encountered before, I Mm. think. Um, Even though I'm sure that the attendance of uni was kind of fairly middle class, but I think there was more diversity than people in encountered before. Yeah. Um, and so people were interested in each other. They also kind of needed support networks if they were living away from their parents. Yeah. And something else I've kind of thought about a bit is there was a lot of new experimentation, like the sexual revolution in inverted commas meant people were kind of dating in a different way. Yeah. Um, maybe that was a new culture and people needed support. Um, like a few people I interviewed spoke about staying up all night and dissecting their like relationships and, <laughs> you know, crying on each other's shoulders and drinking wine. And mm-hmm. um, I think they, you know, you can be open with your parents potentially about those things. So yeah. friendship stepped in as a way of finding understanding yeah. away from family. Um, and so, yeah, it became a kind of support network. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting perspective because I think when, at least for me, when people, when I think back to that time and all of the sort of cultural things happening, you know, like the anti-war movement yeah. and, 
you know, the sexual revolution, as you were mm. saying before, you don't really think about what could happen with friendships. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think made friendship a part of this kind of counterculture? Um, yeah, as I said, I feel like it was very incidental, but, um, I think the generation gap was so massive. A lot of people that I interviewed Mm. spoke about that, not really being close to their parents or Mm. rejecting their parents or their parents rejecting them because Mm. they didn't, their lifestyles didn't align. Their ideologies were worlds apart. Yeah. Um, they didn't feel understood. Um, and so, yeah, friendship stepped in and like share housing, now we're kind of used to the idea of like the share house fam kind of mm. vibe. Um, but I think that creation of family around your share house was fairly new, I suppose, um, yep. as a way of finding social sustenance. Um, so, yeah, I guess friendship was a place of understanding and maybe also happened through activism, like a byproduct of people mm. spending a lot of time together doing organizing you know Mm. like friendship was a part of that you'd cook a meal together stay up all night making zines (laughs) probably that was more an 80s thing but yeah you know making material um and you obviously get closer to those people because you're spending a lot of time together you feel understood by them um you feel nourished by them in a way that you might not through your family yeah yeah wow um in your article in Mm -hmm. overland which speaks more about this rise of friendship and community in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that Melbourne wasn't the only city which this sort of phenomenon yeah. happened in. Where else did it happen? Um, in my research, I didn't go outside of Australia too much because mm. it's too large, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> um but I think, yeah, there was a lot of kind of research that I picked up on from other s- cities um, like yep. London or San Francisco was a big one with yep. Hyde Ashbury. I had to Google how to pronounce that. I think <laughs> I did it right. Um, where lots of, you know, young people came to places where there was other progressives. And I think mm. in Hyde Ashbury, it got so overrun that there was restrictions put in place on wow. people young people living there somehow. I'm not sure exactly what, how those restrictions worked. Huh. But um, this particular article was saying that kind of precipitated the rural commune movement because people left wow. in America and to found communes in other places. Um, yeah. yeah, and a lot of, there's a lot of research from kind of queer histories that, you know, speak about communities in various cities that emerged through queer activism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, share houses and urban collectives and communes associated with that activism yeah so i think it, you know in kind of the west um western cities it happened at a similar time mm. wow do you think it was primarily young people that were a part of this um i mean i think we yeah in the way we, we think about the 60s and 70s it's often focused on youth um and I think that is for a reason. People were reacting against their baby boomer parents and that mm. conservatism. But in the interviews I did and the reading I did, it wasn't that linear all of the time. Like mm. there were some people that got married and had babies and mm. moved to the suburbs and then, you know, read the female eunuch when they were 30 and then yep. moved back to Carlton and yeah, right. joined a share house. So, you know, I think, I don't know what 
how we think about what young is, but I don't think 30 yeah. would have been seen as young then. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, I don't think it was just, you know, young. It wasn't just 19-year-olds. Like, yep. there was a lot of people involved in these communities mm. that had come from different areas or had different trajectories in. Mm. Sure. And what do you think um, are the – you touched on it a little bit before, but what do you think are the lasting effects of this sharehouse culture within – in a Melbourne and the emphasis on community and friendship within that culture. Yeah. I mean, I think it's become a real part of Melbourne, mm. share house cultures. Like, they haven't gone away. Um, and, you know, if I speak to people about what I research, they're often like, oh, those were the heady days when share houses were communities and collectives and now everyone's just an individual. And wow. I think that's a little bit... Um, Romanticized, you know. I think yeah. that we do still have those communal houses and houses of artists and houses of musicians and share houses where people share things or that are based mm. on activism. Like that's still a big part of Melbourne's culture. Mm. Obviously, more people share house now out of necessity because it's so expensive to live alone or buy your yeah. own house. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, there's a share housing culture that we learn and is a bit of a rite of passage and yeah. a language around it. Like if you go on Fairy Floss Real Estate on yep. Facebook, which is where everyone finds their share house, there's a, a short, shortcut language around what kind of house it's going to be. Um, and I think that kind of culture had its roots in this era. Yeah, sure. And you were speaking before about the kind of shift from community to more of an individual mindset. Do you mm. think how has that sort of shift evolved? Um. I feel like it's a little bit when people talk about individualism now and the 70s being not individualistic, I feel like there's a lot of kind of cliche or romanticism in yeah. that. I mean, a lot of people that I interviewed or read about in the 70s, some people did just live in houses with strangers because they needed somewhere to live. Like that still mm. happened mm. then. Um, but perhaps there was more kind of hope with the power of collectives back then. I yeah. think there's a bit of cynicism around activism now, more so than there was then. Like yeah. we kind of talk about virtue signalling and things like that, like we're more kind of aware of the perils of activist communities now yeah. perhaps and kind of smug share housing <laughs> now yeah. than we would have been, they might have been back then. Mm. Um, so I think probably we're a bit more self-aware Um now in terms of how collectives and share houses can have kind of toxicity in them mm. and might not work in this yeah. kind of idealistic way. Yeah. And in terms of like activist activist movements, is there any that kind of intersected with the research that you found? Like which activist movements in particular were involved in this kind of rise of sharehouse culture, I'm wondering? Um, yeah, lots of the activism I read about had sharehouses associated with them. Um, mm. Like the Monash Labour Club had mm. a sharehouse on Greville Street in Paran above a bakery and that was kind of like a bit of a famous party house, yeah, sharehouse wow. associated with that activism at Monash. Um, and there was sharehouses that I read about associated with... Um, you know, late 70s punk in North Fitzroy or cool. La Mama Theatre. There was share houses associated with that. It's almost like every scene 
had its yep. share house culture or a string of houses that people lived in or between. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, just a byproduct of working together and making friends mm. based on shared interests. And people wanting to live with people who believed in the same things as yeah. they do. Very similar yeah. to now. Or even just their friends. Yeah, um, even just their friends. But yeah, yeah, I guess a place where you could feel understood or you, you wouldn't have to hide your passion. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there was... Um, there's a lot of queer activism and queer people in this as well. Yeah, I kind of wrote a little bit about queer activism and share housing and I think from what I read, I think finding a family outside of your family has been a big thing in queer activism and queer culture. Mm. Um, even, you know, even today it's even more important because it was – there was a few – people that kind of spoke about feeling, you know, actually rejected and not safe in their, you know, home communities. Yeah. So coming somewhere like Fitzroy and living in a queer share house where you're accepted is um, necessary for just your own mm. safety. Mm. Um, and that was a really important part of the counterculture, I think. Wow. Yeah. And just uh, the last thing I want to ask before we, before we wrap up, um, just in general, why do you think the importance of friendship and community is underplayed in i guess like wider melbourne society and, and, and society research. in general yeah i guess it's not very like sexy or rock and roll or you mm. know drugs rock and roll activism are all spoken about a lot in regards to the 60s and 70s because yeah. um it's more kind of immediately gripping <laughs> i suppose and yeah. friendship was a bit of a byproduct of all, all of those things yeah um, and it was incidental. It wasn't legislated around. No one's making laws about friendship or community yeah. directly, yeah. whereas, like, sex was legislated around. So it was, you know, activism yeah. or... Yeah. Yeah, so it was a bit quiet, perhaps. Yeah. Do you think it's more of a way to kind of, like, t to focus on the drugs and the rock and roll and the, quote-unquote, rebellion is a yeah. way to sort of... Uh, villainize yeah the people involved yeah that's interesting i kind of it, it kind of trivializes it a little bit almost yeah you're just like oh you're having fun or trying to be rebellious or like it's silly or something yeah. um yeah that's a really good point um and i think friendship and community is understated even though it should be like celebrated as part of those cultures mm. and as part of activism but I think people, yeah, would tend to like to focus on self-satisfied rebellion and yep. hedonism than the nice parts. <laughs> yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Molly McHugh. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, that's all I have for you. Cool. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. We 
Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax-deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm You're listening to 3CR855AM and this has been Grace, James and Rob. Now before we let you go listeners, I just want to let you know again that the event for the survival-led approach to combating modern slavery uh, event will be happening tomorrow from 1.30 to 2.30pm and this will be online via Zoom. This event will be live captioned if you have any questions or inquiries you can contact events.socialjustice at uts.edu.au to discuss uh, with them how you can support access requirements. Helena Hassani is going to be one of the speakers there who I spoke to earlier this morning. And if you want to register for this event, you can go to Anti-Slavery Australia's website to access the event there. We will also pop it up on our show notes so you can register for the event. Nicely said. Great Mm. job today, everybody. Big show, as always. Yes, and... What are you going to be doing over the week, James? I've got no idea, actually, <laughs> which is lovely. I'm going to do something, and we'll figure that out. <laughs> you figure it out all the time as the day comes. We'll, we'll figure that out maybe after the show. Just see what you feel like in the day. Yeah, how about mm-hmm. you, Grace? Well, I'm not really sure, actually, now that I'm pretty much done. I think I'm just going to chill. and I've been applying for casual jobs, so yep. I'm mm. just slowly taking my time with that because I feel like... If I rush into it, it's not really a good idea because I want to have a break at the same time. Yeah. So I'm just a bit like, I'll just do whatever I can and whatever mm. I need to. Because I, I think I kind of have enough of a break, but I still want more, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> at, some point, at some point, it'll turn from wanting a break to just needing a job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about you, Rob? Um, I'm just looking at share houses to move in, actually. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Good luck. Very timely Thank with you. your interview. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, going on fairy floss. Yeah, just looking to kind of establish my, my landlord raise 
raise the rent. So uh, sorry to hear that. We are moving out instead of yeah. paying that. So fair enough. We're looking to see what what's out there. No worries. Uh, this has been Monday Breakfast with James, Rob and Grace. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.